Hello and welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio, a bi-weekly podcast devoted to exploring successful legal marketing strategies driving new business development at law firms from the largest international firm to the solo attorney. In every episode, you'll find actionable takeaways that you can implement immediately. The podcast is a production of Picture More Business, a corporate photography studio with a core focus on the legal industry. I'm Michael Meyer, the host of the Legal Marketing Studio. In this episode, part of a special month-long mini-series on web design for law firms, I'm delighted to be speaking with Todd Rengel of Animus Rex. Over the past 17 years, Animus Rex has helped law firms, financial firms, nonprofits, and fast-growing startups with their online strategy, positioning, and presence. Todd, welcome to the Legal Marketing Studio. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Just start with the background of Animus Rex. What's what's the origin story? Oh, my God. Well, uh, back in the 90s, I was working at Morgan Stanley. And, uh, of course, the dot-com was going on, and everybody was excited about that. And I, uh, and I was burnt out working 110 hours a week. We, we ran worldwide media events for them. And a good friend of mine had been running some online stuff, uh, making websites for big firms like PricewaterhouseCoopers and, and Texaco and, uh, and some prodigy work and stuff like that, and asked me to come on board to run their production. And, uh, and I really enjoyed the web space. I didn't like how the, uh, the owners ran their company. So after a year, I, I looked at my buddy and I said, we can do this better. <laughs> so, uh, so I started Animus Rex back in 2000. Uh, we didn't know the dot-com had burst and uh, <laughs> we found out soon. But within, um, we started the company with three clients. Uh, by the end of uh, the year, two of them had gone out of business and we had one left. And then we diversified. Again, I, I had, you know, worked some of the contacts at Morgan Stanley and we started to, to do sites for some of their peripheral entities. And I ran into a, uh, a design firm that had been working uh, with with Proskauer Rose, and they were going through uh, their first real website, and uh, we were asked to develop that because the design company knew how to do print, but they didn't know how to do web, and we specialized in web, and uh, and so it became a really good partnership. So after Proskauer Rose, of course, one law firm website begets another law firm website begets another because it's a very small industry. And we started to have a specialization not only in finance, but then in law and have learned uh, legal marketing as legal marketing has evolved in leaps and bounds over the last 17 years. And it continues to evolve. So what are your typical clients? What are your typical projects look like? Mm, it's uh, It really depends on the type of, of client. A big law firm typically looks like strategy and, and branding and editorial and, and completely revamping the website uh, from basically the ground up, but really looking at it from a much more sophisticated uh, perspective than some of the smaller firms. It, it involves content uh, migration often because we're no longer dealing with people's first or second generation sites. It's often third or fourth, so we're porting content from uh, databases. We're manipulating that. We're cleaning it. Uh, we're then repositioning positioning it, go through a whole content uh, uh, uh if you want to call it that, where you're looking at what's staying the same, what's changing, uh, what exists and needs to be rewritten, what's brand new, uh, and then, of course, bringing that to, to a, a new look and feel that works then across all the platforms, that works across mobile and tablet and you know, various types of desktop sites and so on and so forth. So that's a larger uh, firm. That takes 
nine to 12 months on average. But then there are smaller firms, and smaller firms are really fun to work with as well. It's a much much more immediate experience. You tend to deal with the uh, decision makers directly and in a way that really affects their business. And those sites uh, are also looking at strategy and branding and positioning. But often it's more simple because you don't have the layers of, of partnership. It's a much more immediate experience. And then you can bring design and uh, look and feel to that, again, across all the devices and so on and so forth. One thing I noticed on your website, you talk about sort of the core values of, of the agency. Yeah. Could you just talk a bit about that? Uh, that was something I thought was really interesting. You're, you're, you know, your focus on ethics and sort of quality of life and balancing between doing this work, but also yeah. you know, actually living your life. <laughs> well, I think it's really important. A lot of the times you get stuck in the what and the how. And, uh, and, and, and law firms do that all the time. These are the practices that we've got, you know, this is how we do that, so on and so forth. And so we look at it the same, same way, you know, we make websites for law firms and finance firms and so on and so forth. And we do that with talented folks and that's the what and the how, but who cares? Lots of people do that. The why I think is really much more fundamental and it creates a human connection. You know, why we get up every morning and, and do this, I think is, as important or more important than what we do because it brings a sense of humanity to it. It brings a sense of value. And I think in a service industry, people buy from people they trust. And when you're looking at a web design or development firm, you're often looking at a long-term relationship. So most clients that we're with are five, seven, ten years. We've got some clients that are 15 years. And that kind of long-term relationship starts and is built upon the, the factor of trust. Well, if you know what somebody's motivation is and why they do it, it lends itself to trust. And I think that that's an important thing to lead with, and I don't see many, many folks doing it. So we wanted to put out there right away, here's what we stand for. Often the internet can be a very impersonal place, and I think that at the end of the day, we need to remember that we're dealing with somebody on the other end of the screen. We're creating content, we're creating an experience that somebody else is going to have to consume, and we're trying to connect with individuals, not just our target. And I think that that gets lost sometimes, and I like to bring the conversation back to that because it creates a much more authentic and meaningful premise upon which to build something, upon which to, I, I guess I would call it approach the subject matter. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about building those relationships in that way, because something that struck me about about the Animus Rex site um, was that there seems to be a focus on the functionality of sites. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, you know, because your homepage, you know, you talk right about development at the beginning and then process, and then you go into, you know, IA and UX and all this other stuff. But then that, that page later, you're talking about relationships and really focusing on that underlying need to connect with individuals, with real people. Yeah. And we could talk a bit about that kind of divide between this very almost tool-oriented view of a website uh -huh. with that need to reach those individuals. It's a real duality. You need to put on two headspaces in order to effectively work in web. And maybe sometimes three. Because you're looking at, at, at very sophisticated technology, neuroscience to some degree, as you're dealing with design and user experience and how that all affects the brand, which is the third head. And the brand 
you can, you can have a really great brand with a website that doesn't have much content and it falls down. Or you can have great content, a great you know look and feel, and the site is dog slow, and it falls flat. You know, people's expectations are things are easy to get to, things are meaningful, things you know work fast, it's punchy, and all of that adds to the user experience. And the sum total of it is what the end user sees. All the thought that goes behind that are humans. Right, all the thought that goes behind that is this idea of of connecting, and so to work and operate on multiple planes of awareness, not to get you know new agey or anything like that, but it really is important because some of this technology is just extremely sophisticated, and yet Google does it. And the comment is, well, you know, Google does it, can't you? And Google is a multi-billion dollar company. And you sit there and go, yes, I can get there. But let's look at why you want to do something. So we're not just putting in functionality for the sake of functionality. We're putting in functionality that means something to somebody. I mean, sometimes you, I'll see websites and they'll feel just like brochures on the web. Mm-hmm. Like someone's taken their print brochure and mm-hmm. just made it into an HTML file. I don't get the sense that you're sites operate that way, that they're much more functional than that. I'm just curious how you see what what that core function of the website is mm-hmm. and sort of what the potential is for firms to sort of maximize on the, the unique functionalities of the, of the web. Again, you need to come back to the purpose of the site and how it's satisfying the overall business need. In, in some smaller scenarios, uh, it may just be brochureware, and that's perfectly fine. If you want to start to kick it up, a notch, and then you start to look at how these things interrelate. For instance, most law firms have a, a few different relational aspects to that. Attorneys are related to practices and offices. News is related. News and publications and events, you know, are related to attorneys, sometimes practices, often offices. And you can have this cross-related information Instead of just silos, a lot of the times people think of websites as silos. I'm in the practice areas section, or I'm in the attorney section, or I'm in news and publications, or I'm in contact, or I'm in the careers section. And those are looked at as very linear shoots. And what becomes interesting is tying those pieces together horizontally. And that creates a much more rich experience from the end user perspective, uh, but it also helps for all the other underlying issues like SEO, like the fact that most people don't actually drill into sites anymore. We've watched user behavior change radically over the years. And think about it. You used to go to a website and you'd go to the homepage and you'd check it out and then you'd maybe drill into one section and go back to the homepage, drill into another section, go back to the homepage, and you'd do this up-down kind of thing. Well, well, now what we see is people go to Google, they search for something, they go directly to a deep content page. They may never hit your homepage, right? So if the assumption now is that a user will go directly to a deep content page, and that's the first experience they have of your brand, how can you capture that? How can you provide a frictionless experience for them to discover more about the firm when they're just coming in and, and you know your own behavior? You, you, you go into a site, you go, is this for me? And you either ditch it or you then explore further because there's something more for you to see. So we're starting to look at, at, at deep level content pages and evaluate 
what if this is the first time I ever see the site? Can I get something out of it? Do I understand it? Do Am I able to then do something without having to think further? Right? There's a, there's a great book. It's called Don't Make Me Think. And Don't Make Me Think is kind of quintessential from a user experience kind of mentality. It's simple, but you keep coming back to this idea of if you make something hard for somebody, they're going to abandon it. So try to make it easy, right? Try to pre-think some of the things. And that why we, that, that's why we've started to get more and more lately into the idea of discoverable content. And you, you, see, you see it all the time in like, uh, you know, media sites, CNN or HuffPost or Times or whatever, right? You get to the end of an article and there's 12 more things for you to click on. And the thing is about, you know, media sites, they may just push up the what they want you to see now. And some of that may be sponsored even. But attorney sites, especially larger attorney sites, have a, a unique ability to present content in a way that's actually relevant to the user just based on the current content they're on. We can do analysis of the of the, the page they're actually on, search the rest of the site, and present content at the bottom that's actually relevant to what they're reading without any kind of creepy personalization or anything like that. So uh, it, it works well, but you'd need to watch how users actually behave versus how you think they behave. My wife is actually a UX designer. Uh So a lot of these things are conversations that we have had when she's thinking through Uh a project. The nature of how we use the web, especially with the onslaught of mobile, Mm -hmm. certainly changes how you find information and how you move through it. And how you expect to see it. Yes. If your site isn't really mobile friendly, you've lost already. You you can pinch and zoom and all that, but users expect to come into a site and be able to zip around and do what they need to do. We were fortunate because, you know, again, since we're cross-disciplinary and we work across so many different industries, legal marketing, you know, really started in the late 90s. And whereas, you know, marketing in every other industry started when a millennia ago almost, right? And so legal marketing is is catching up and we're able to take some of the the ideas from other, you know, consumer oriented stuff and apply those to to legal and and it works very well. So and that kind of understanding uh gives perspective because you see patterns come over and over and over again. For instance, this is a good example. Back in the the 90s and early 2000s, everybody was on a dial up Right. You had 56K, you know, baud modems and load time was a real problem. You were trying to minimize file sizes and trying to to do something that allowed a page to load relatively quickly. But you were in such a limited bandwidth scenario that doing that was sometimes a challenge. It was easy to make something pretty, but it would take 10 minutes to load. And then all of a sudden, broadband became very ubiquitous until mobile started. Because then mobile was a limited bandwidth situation. So when mobile started to happen, we already knew how to optimize for low bandwidth situations. And we were able to take our previous experience and apply it to a new form with the same underlying issues. Probably a full year before the idea of responsive design became popular, we had already done three responsive design sites for law firms. We did the first three responsive designs for law firms ever. Uh, we did the very first mobile website for a, a law firm way back in 2006. And it worked great on a BlackBerry. 
So as you start to evolve, you're, you're then able to take what you've learned in the past, apply it to new methodology and new behavior, and, and have this very nice feedback loop of what's actually important to users and, and what's not. I mean, as you're describing this, it sounds to me like sort of the technical possibilities mm-hmm. are in a way feeding the design strategy. Because you're saying you want to do whatever you want to do. Here are the tools to do it. Now we'll build the site mm-hmm. to do it. I mean, it seems like that technical potential mm-hmm. sort of at the forefront of, of your of your process. Is that is that fair or is that not quite fair? I think that knowing what's possible informs a kind of insightful decision making. It all starts with strategy. It It can't. An effective site can't start with anything other than strategy, how it fits into their kind of overall digital strategy, how their digital strategy then fits into their overall business strategy and where they're going. And every story is a little different. If you start from the strategy perspective, if you start from the the strategy perspective, it's really hard to go wrong because you have the ability to gauge various milestones and various initiatives against that original strategy. You want to do X? Great. Does that fit in with where you're going? Yes or no? And then it becomes less of a conversation between, yeah, I like orange, you know, I like green. Well, I like blue. Well, who cares? What's the color that's going to promote your brand in a way that fits with your strategy? That way, things can proceed in a way that makes sense. And at the end of the project, you actually get what you need versus design by committee. The technology comes in because it informs what's possible. I think there's a, in an ideal situation, there's a real nice uh, cyclical relationship between design and technology because technology can inform design. For instance, there are things that browsers can do these days that they couldn't do five years ago. Well, because of that, we have a, a much wider palette of tools to choose from versus having to lay out a page in a certain way. Now we can layer things on top. Tabs used to be very difficult. Now tabs are pretty easy right? There are a lot of different things that technology can help solve and streamline, but technology isn't what drives it. Technology supports it. Design isn't actually what drives it. Design supports it. What's the it? The it is the strategy. The it is what you're trying to convey to the person on the other end of of the screen. If you don't have the clear purpose and the clear idea of how you're trying to communicate, design and technology are relatively useless. How much do you get involved in those discussions, either the larger digital strategy Mm -hmm. or a larger marketing strategy? Or how are you fitting, how much information do you need to fit the strategy of the site that you're building into those larger sort of rings of the onion? Again, it kind of depends on when we're brought into a project. Ideally, I'd like to be involved uh, at least at a high level from the start. The ideal would be, hey, we're thinking about doing this. Let's, let's start from the beginning because that way we can, we can help inform and actually be useful consultants early on. Uh, so that as people are, are making decisions, as people are formulating their plan, they know it's possible. There's a lot of misinformation out there. We spend, uh, oh my God, I spend maybe a third of my time keeping up on what is happening. If you, if you don't keep up on what's happening, you're, you're walking around with concepts that are typically two, three, four, five years old. So we like to be brought in at the beginning. If we're brought in halfway through and there are, and there are holes, 
we'll then go in and explore what those holes are. Sometimes people uh, have already worked with a, uh, a branding firm and they've gone through that kind of exercise and then they want to take that new brand, that new look and feel and apply it to a website. And we can do that very easily. Uh, there are some strategic questions we may want to answer, but sometimes that information is already available because they've already gone through the brand exercise. And we can review that, ask the additional questions, and it can be a relatively uh, short process to get us up to speed. If somebody's never thought of it and they just say, you know, I want a website, we'll back into at least a short brand strategy conversation. And it may be abbreviated, but at least we need to have the high-level information. Because again, you're, if you don't have any kind of strategic approach, you're throwing spaghetti against the wall and hoping that some of it sticks. And maybe you get lucky and maybe you don't. But if you actually uh, come back to strategy and know why you're doing something, you have a much higher uh, percentage of success than shooting in the dark. You know, we've got enough experience at this point. If, if somebody said, go make us a, a website, we could look at their industry and we'd probably get close just by doing what we think is right. But that means that you're giving up that control, that power, that input to us. And while I'm happy to take on that responsibility, I, I don't necessarily think it's the right thing from a business's perspective to let go of what can be a really interesting exploration to why they're doing something that they do. Uh, oftentimes, uh, uh, redoing a website is a, is a catalyst to, to deeper change within the firm. Processes come to light that might you know, uh, uh, be able to be refined. A lot of the times it helps to bring people together because, you know, partner A may think the firm stands for one thing and partner B may think the firm stands for something else. Partner C may have yet a third opinion and they often do. And, and so the idea of consensus building and, and bringing people around the table and getting excited about the direction, uh, and unifying a direction, uh, can sometimes be an unintended consequence of saying, Hey, I want my website redone. How do you see the websites fitting into this broader digital ecosystem? Mm -hmm. Particularly things like social media blogging or video channels or podcasting, anything like that. How do you see that website fitting into that? Is it either central to it? Does things have to link to it? Or do these things all kind of exist separately? I've got some pretty strong opinions about the digital ecosystem because at least in my experience and the experience that I've found with my clients and, and having pretty in-depth conversations, it's really difficult to draw a straight line from your activity on social media to your bank account. And without that direct line there, it's very difficult to justify spend. And yet at the same time, it's a buzz. Everybody's doing it. If you're not on Twitter, you're not on Facebook, you're not on LinkedIn, you're nowhere. And yet I think it's a false sense of energy, right? It's akin to running really fast and you're, and you're just putting everything you've got into it and you look down and you're on a treadmill and you've actually gone nowhere because it doesn't matter. 
right? It's an echo chamber. And then you start to look at things like uh, social media bubbles and the fact that people are in very closed systems because that's how social media works. You may not actually be getting the reach that you think you're getting, even if you're putting in really good content, because the social media tends to, to work around clusters of people who are of like mind. So you're preaching to the choir often versus reaching beyond and connecting with people that you'd like to. There are ways around that, but most of the time, that's what happens. So the website in relationship to the larger digital ecosystem, I think you need to really evaluate, again, what you want to do with content and why, and how you interact with social and why, and know that it may or may not do anything for you. Casting a wider net, sure. Being there, having some exposure, sure. Being able to directly tie to business, big question mark. On the content marketing side, that's what law firms have been doing for a long time. That's why there's a news section or a publication section or an event section, because it adds content that may be relevant, that may become, you know, that may come up in a search and help to drive traffic. I don't think law firms are very good at taking that and converting that to an actual lead. Using your website as lead generation, I think, starts to really run into some privacy concerns because you can do really deep profiling of consumers. But at the end of the day, a law firm is supposed to be establishing trust. And even though it's technically feasible to know who exactly is on your website and what they're doing, if they get a call from somebody, you know, hey, I just noticed you were on my website looking at blah, blah, blah practice, that's creepy. So I think there's a real balancing act that's going on. And we've had conversations with a lot of people about how far do you go? Where do you draw the line? We've had uh, some, some folks say, I don't care. I just want to close business. And if I can use the tools, I, I just don't care. And then other folks that have gone, yeah, that's not where we want to go. And I think that's a decision that you need to make culturally as a, as a firm and be very comfortable with that decision. But it should be a conversation that you're having. If you're not having that conversation, you may stumble into something that you are not really prepared to, to be in. Content marketing itself is, is fantastic, you know, versus interruptive marketing, you know, advertising, you know, reaching out proactively, providing real valuable content that somebody can look at you and say, oh, they're smart people. They do what I need. You know, I'm going to reach out to them, uh, showing some personality. Again, people buy from people they trust. Putting good content out on, out on the web, I think, is really great. The one thing I think that law firms have, have really hit upon that I think is exceedingly effective is niche blogs, right? Now, whether a blog is on a separate site or whether it's part of the website itself, your main website, there are various studies that show six to one half dozen to the other. Sometimes you can see some traffic coming from a blog if it's done right back to your main site. Other folks have, have folded blogs back into their website and just looked at it as, a, as another channel. Your blogs are basically articles that follow a common theme. And so if you can pull that back into the website, a lot of firms have seen that the traffic comes directly to the site and they're already on the site and they can cross-connect all that stuff Anyway, so they can tie an attorney directly to a blog and have that show up in the attorney's, you know, profile. And that's really nice because then you're looking at 
showing additional information, additional content to a visitor based on where they are in the site versus driving them to a certain section. And you want to be able to connect at any touch point that the client is actually at, or the prospective client is at, versus have them hunt for content. So to close this, I wanted to get sort of six pieces of advice from you mm. in two chunks of three. The first one, when is it time for a firm to redo their website? What are some signs that that it might be time to redo the website. And if they're, if they, once they've decided that it's time to redo the website, what should questions should they be asking themselves before they come to you? Sure. And then the second part of it, two or three things that they should be thinking about in choosing a designer, in choosing a, an agency to help build that website, you know, in terms of finding the right fit for them. So when you, when you start to look at a website, the first thing that you, that I think you need to evaluate is what's the lifespan of the website? A lot of industries have, an 18-month turn on websites. Most law firms that I know want to squeeze three, four, five years out of a website. Sometimes they want to squeeze 10 years out of a website. 10 years in, in the internet is several lifetimes in the real world. So I would tend to say if your website is over three years, start thinking about the next round. If your site isn't mobile-friendly, you need to start you know, looking at that now. You needed to start looking at it years ago, but you need to really start looking at it now. The process of evaluating and choosing both a designer and a developer takes some time. So if it's three years and it takes a year to figure out both what you want to do and to select somebody and another six months to a year to build the thing, you're now looking at a five-year life cycle. So I would tend to say time is one rationale. And then the other is, is there something that happened to make your site look extremely dated, right? There are certain technologies that uh, that start to come out, for instance, responsive design, where all of a sudden everything that came before it starts to look like a dinosaur in a short amount of time. If you're trying to uh, compete and all of the folks around you are now looking more like a magazine and you're looking like beveled edges from 1997, it's it's time to redo your website. What was the second part of the question? What what are the questions to be asking the agencies that, that you're looking at in terms of finding the right fit and making sure that that who you select to build that site for you is going to A, get you there, but B, is going to get you there in a way that you are comfortable with uh, and that you feel good about? First, a couple different approaches. You can look at build and design as two separate functions. They don't necessarily need to be with the same agency. Um, a lot of agencies actually will subcontract out the build. So, for instance, a lot of design firms will say they do web, and what they do is design, and then they'll go find somebody to actually implement. Be aware of that because at the end of the day, the design is something that will have a short relationship with a designer, but the developer, you'll end up having a much longer relationship with them. So I would be very aware of what the structure is of the firm you're hiring and who do they outsource to, what are the relationships, who are strategic partners versus who's in-house, whether they outsource overseas or not, because there can be some communication issues with that and some turn turnaround time issues with that. So I'd be, I'd be really interested in the structure of how that, that happens. Two, you want to make sure that they, that they know what they're doing, that they've done other stuff, 
uh, common sense things. You know, you can look at their website and see what kind of work they've done. I would be mindful, though, about the work that's on somebody's site. Um, one is old by definition because it already happened. And two, you know, if you don't like, if you like the general idea of what somebody has done, you like some of the features, you may want to give them a shot because sometimes if there's one thing that kind of irks you, it may have been designed by committee and, and the, and the person just didn't have the ability to, to, to fight back against that. And they would have never made the decision to begin with. So look at a body of work versus isolated examples and look at overall capabilities versus I like uh, design A, because what's what's absolutely horrible is when a, a client comes to me and says, I like that website, make me one just like that. And you go, no, you, you're unique. I, I can take some of the concepts from design A and find out what's unique about you and apply those those concepts. But to copy something just outright it just feels wrong to me and it becomes inauthentic. So, so again, look at a body of work. And then the other thing, make sure you get references and check it out. Somebody can talk, you know, a good game, but talk to their clients, talk to, to people who deal with them on a regular basis. Again, you're establishing either a six to 12 month relationship with, a, with, with design or a two to 10 year relationship with the developer. So interview them. Make sure that you like them. Make sure that they're clear. Some some real uh, signs of warning is if they start talking in jargon a lot and make things seem confusing, and they're the only people that can solve the problem. You know, I, I, I have a real strong philosophy about educating clients to the extent that they want to be educated so that this stuff isn't a mystery. We're going to go through a process to educate you so you can make informed decisions. If you've got somebody saying, I'll do all that for you, you don't need to be involved, I'd probably run. So those are those are a few things. You know, look at a body of work, look at the overall capabilities, understand the structure of who you're dealing with. Partnerships are great, right? There are very, uh, it's a lot like a, a, a movies are put together this way, where you have specialists that come together to create a movie and then they disband and, and it's, and it's fantastic. A lot of, uh, especially larger, uh, law firm sites are now collaborations between people uh, that have specialties. There's a brand specialist. There's a UI specialist. You know, there's a development specialist. There's designers, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be under under one roof. If you can find it under one roof, maybe maybe that works pretty well. But there's nothing wrong with it being slightly disjointed from the perspective of of the structure, as long as there's a central command and control. You've got a general contractor who's ultimately responsible for that. Uh, and they're the ones who are responsible for delivering the project. Todd, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Legal Marketing Studio Podcast. I, I hope it was informative. I'm sure everyone will find it super informative, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and thank you to our listeners who've joined us for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe to the podcast. The Legal Marketing Studio can be found on iTunes and on SoundCloud. Extended content, including photographs and links, can be found on our website, legalmarketing.studio. Note that there's no .com. It is just legalmarketing.studio. If you have a topic you'd like to discuss or know someone who might, please send an email to producer at legalmarketing.studio or reach out via the contact page on our website. The Legal Marketing Studio is a production of Picture More Business, a full-service corporate photography studio focused on the legal industry 
based in Brooklyn, New York, and working with clients nationally. If your firm is updating its website, hiring new attorneys, or revamping its brand and marketing materials, please give us a call. We'd love to explore collaborative opportunities. More information can be found at picturemorebusiness.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. (music) 